This is the Untold Civil War, and guess what? It's official. The hotel is booked, and I will be at Gettysburg for Remembrance Day. I'll be watching the parade, organized by the SUVCW, and of course, walking the battlefield, checking out the museums, and buying some Civil War relics. And of course, I will have the drawing for my latest raffle. If you want to be in the running to win some Civil War reading and Civil War artifacts, sign up on Patreon and become a patron for as low as $3 a month. Link in the show notes. Also, if you're in Gettysburg at the same time, don't be afraid to say hello. And now, collapse onto the couch, turn up the volume, let's delve into some untold Civil War. This is the Untold Civil War, and I'm with brother and sister duo, Donna and William Birch, and we're discussing their new book, WG, the story of the opium-addicted, pistol-toting preacher who raised the first federal African-American Union troops. Welcome to the show. What a great story. I can't wait to talk about it. We couldn't be more happy to be here. We feel we've got a, an interesting story for you today. Yes, oh, we do. I- Oh, absolutely. And I'm so glad we could finally do this. Like I said before, you know, it took a little bit of time, but we got it organized. And like I said, I can't wait to dig into this. But just to start us off, before we get into WG, I'd like to talk about you guys and how I like to put it. When did the Civil War bug first bite you? Because, you know, we all love the Civil War. That's why we're here. So I looked at your history and when the Civil War bug bit you. And I thought that was really a great story about a start in the second grade, in a sense, watching Gettysburg with the Himalayan mountains in the background. And then in fourth grade, getting a hold of Grant's memoirs and reading that. So for me, it was, I had a typical introduction to the Civil War through education. And then when I was in my late 40s, I had a really unusual opportunity. A man who was a trustee at Ohio Wesleyan University where I worked was a huge Civil War buff. And he thought that there were so many lessons with the generals during the Civil War that were applicable to the leadership of a college or any organization. So he, out of his own pocket, took our whole senior team, which was like seven or eight people, to the Cash Town Inn in Gettysburg, put us up for three days. And before we went, we had to read all these books and watch some documentaries and movies. And then the very first day we were on the porch of the Cash Town Inn, he said, what general do you connect with in terms of leadership stories and why? And it was the most fascinating beginning. And then we spent three days touring the battlefield learning more about the Civil War overall. And I mean, what a great and unusual experience. And the very last day we did Pickett's Charge as a little group. Uh, so that that's when it bit me big time. Wow. Um, can I get a boss like that? I'd like a boss like <laughs> that. <who does. laughs> Do you remember uh, which general you chose as, as you know, someone? <laughs> I've been racking my brain because I, I know that I had I recalled, and I don't know if it was my choice or if it was just kind of the consensus, but on the Confederate side, it was Longstreet that that seemed to come in hot and heavy. And then on the Union side, it was, I think you say it, Buford. And so that's what I remember. But everyone had a slightly different take or a different reason. It was a great, a great, great experience. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, the Civil War... There's so many lessons you can take from it, whether it's leadership, you know. Well, I think I have an episode on that, actually. <laughs> my uh, 
interest really came about, I've always had a fascination with Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and I, I know a lot of people do. He, he was such an interesting character and such a uh, influential character, certainly in the path of our history. Uh, but I was always intrigued by the decisions he had to make uh, and the decisions that he did make. And then also just the, you know, the fact that he was kind of perceived in the Washington elite, if you will, uh, as a bit of a, a, you know, unsophisticated guy, but he was smart like a fox, you know, and he, and he actually used that to his advantage at times, I believe. He was, he was such a, a contemplative uh, president and uh, a fascinating guy. So, of course, that led us to the Civil War towards, obviously, towards the end of his life. And uh, that's kind of how I got in, into it. And then, of course, with uh, with the, the story of W. G. Raymond, um, that that opened a whole new whole new world for for both of us. Well, fantastic! I think that's a great segue. You know, so it's William Gould Raymond. How did you find this story? We were talking about this earlier. How you know I've read a lot about the Civil War, and I have never found this character, and yet this is someone I think everyone should know. I mean, it's he it should be a prominent character. How did you guys find this story? Through our family uh, lore, as we were growing up as, as children and, and older, uh, we'd always heard the story of this this great 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 grandfather that we had that had raised a uh, a regiment of African American soldiers for, for for the District of Columbia, and that he had received you know uh, authority from Abraham Lincoln, and it was always quite an interesting story. But nobody had really any concrete details, and there was a. a you know, the, someone knew that there somewhere there was a memoir that W.G. Raymond had written uh, back in the 19th century, and it was published. Lo and behold, uh, our Aunt Gail, <laughs> who is our mother's sister, uncovered this tattered memoir from W.G. Raymond in her attic, and we began making copies. And then uh, since it was in the public domain, we were able to secure some additional uh, copies that were a little better put together. But it was fascinating. And so his story really, really came to us, and uh, we used the recent downtime, if you will, uh, of the pandemic to finally get around to saying, "Hey, you know what? Let's let's really dig into this and, and get to know this guy, and find out." To your point, Paul, how how did this guy fall through the cracks in terms of, you know, history and uh, in the dialogue around the Union effort around raising African-American troops and so forth. How, why is he not more prominently? So that was our task, and that's how we approached it diligently and used the, the pandemic to sort of hole up and, and get at it. And uh, that, that's the story we uncovered. Now, I know you talk about that memoir. Um, were there other primary sources that you used to dig into this? What other resources did you have to uh, sort of flesh out this book? Fortunately, with the internet, compared to when we were back in school, uh, re research is a lot more of a, a manageable un undertaking than it, than it would have been had we tried to do this 20 years ago. But, and, and this is where it gets interesting as to how he, he fell through. A key sort of trove of information for Civil War research or specific characters uh, in the Civil War is typically pension records, service pension records. Uh, as well as War Department records, uh, but official records. And this is where the, you know, WG kind of went off the rails when it came with respect to federal troops or with respect to troops from the District of Columbia. And this is where the story gets kind of interesting, is that as he was, you know, we'll talk about this more, but WG 
you know, had been appointed by Abraham Lincoln, along with J.D. Turner, to raise uh, the first District of Columbia Colored Volunteers was the initial troop or organization. And this was Lincoln's foray into uh, troops from the District of Columbia after he made the decision to, to do that after the Emancipation Proclamation in January of 1863. It was interesting because, uh, and they went at it, you know, very diligently as far as recruiting, but the Secretary of War at the time, Edwin Stanton, the head of the War Department, balked and, uh, at Lincoln's orders, and he threw them on the table. And, you know, it, it, he, he wasn't prepared for this. He wasn't prepared for these federal troops. Now, at the state level, there were troops, of course, being raised under the authority of governors, but not, not expressly from Lincoln. The 54th of Mass, of course, we've all heard of, and, and there were other troops throughout. But this was the first sort of federal District of Columbia troop, and Stanton wasn't, he felt he should be making personnel decisions. And so he was really taken aback by Lincoln's forwardness on that. So to get quickly back to your, your question around research. So, you know, that's because there were no pension records uh, of, of their activities prior to the development of the, the Bureau of Colored Troops. You know, there were no pension records and there were no records of this activity on the War Department logs as well. So that explains sort of how he fell through the, the cracks. But there's several wonderful books, not several, but a few key books that were incredibly well-researched. And, you know, one of them is uh, Lincoln's Citadel, which... That was Ken Winkle who yeah, wrote that book. That, that's correct. Ken, Ken Winkle uh, put together really a monumental work on, on Civil War Washington, D.C. And, and Lincoln's progress and, and, you know, getting to where he was comfortable and ready to have federal African-American troops. And Kenneth Winkle's book is wonderful in that it, it did discuss W.G. Raymond and it discussed, you know, his meetings with Lincoln and his, his life even. And and then Margaret Leach, you know, her Pulitzer Prize winning book on uh, Reveille in Washington uh, is a fascinating book. And, and she nailed W.G. in terms of his, his personality and his eagerness, his zeal. his zeal. But I have to tell you, they're few and far between. <laughs> and, and it's not really the fault of the historians. It tends to be, uh, you know, they tend to start with pension records and War Department records. And of course, there's nothing there. And we can talk about that more. So most historians start with the establishment of the Bureau of Colored Troops on May 22nd of 1863 as the starting point and then go forward from there. But WG's activities were the earlier in May of that year prior to the establishment of the Bureau of Colored Troops. So, you know, so, and then of course, uh, Library of Congress, the official uh, libraries of Abraham Lincoln and, and uh, senators some key senators, uh, we, we looked at their official libraries and correspondence or uh, articles from archives of the old newspapers of the time, you know, are much more accessible than they used to be. And that's what we dove into. And we pieced this story together, uh, just piece by piece, using his memoirs as sort of a, a basic roadmap. Um, but our goal was to cooperate he made many interesting representations and we wanted to cooperate those. Well, you know, that's one thing I love about the Civil War, how, you know, you can find one little name or one regiment or something, one short little story. And next thing you know, you're going through Library of Congress stuff and digging in deep and going down that rabbit hole that we mentioned. But uh, let, let's get into this guy. You know, I know that the audience really wants to know more about William Gould Raymond. So how did he get his start in life? 
Well, I'll tell you what I find uh, interesting about people in general is that our, our dad used to always say, who you are is a kind of a combination of where you were when. And so for WG, his story, his origins began in New York State. Um, he came from a farm family. His father's side had immigrated, come over from England, and they were farmers. And he had a fairly large family. There were three brothers and three sisters. And uh, he was born, and this seems kind of fitting for our time frame, on July 4th. W.G. was born on July 4th of 1819. He was part of that community of Milo, New York, near the Finger Lakes. And uh, I think in some ways, because we did have access to his own notes, he had been kind of a teenager who moved away from his family roots a bit. He, he was a Baptist because his family, they were Baptists, and he liked what he called kind of worldly pleasures. We don't know necessarily what that fully entailed, but he had a good buddy named Ed Wayburn. And they were called by W.G.'s family to go to a revival. You know, at that time in the 1800s, revivals were a big deal. And W.G. and this Ed Wayburn wanted to go, but they, they wanted to go so they could mock the people who were attending it. And then instead, what happened is he kind of had this recurrence of his uh, Baptist beliefs because he felt himself kind of surrender his worldly ways, so to speak. And that became the beginning of his preaching life. He was a young man, probably 19, 20 years old. And uh, at the time, there was Hamilton Theological and Literary College, which is now Colgate University. And um, his preaching prowess was strong enough that people encouraged him to attend that. So that kind of brings us up to young 20s. He went to school. He refined his understanding of a lot of things and um, moved around New York and other places, kind of becoming a Baptist preacher for the beginning part of his life. Now, I know I mentioned Remembrance Day at Gettysburg, so if you're making the trip, get the most out of it by using the resources from our sponsor, Civil War Trails. They've got all the information you need to get the full Civil War experience. Link in the show notes. So where is he when the Civil War kicks off in 1861? Because he enters the Civil War, but this is a, another part which is kind of interesting because how he enters is not your typical story, right? Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Uh, you know, what we learned about W.G. Raymond is that he always was uh, seeking an opportunity to, um, to serve, you know. Mm -hmm. And it, it's interesting, he was preaching uh, in New York State and really admonishing everyone to enlist, uh, you know, to go fight for the Union cause and to end slavery. He was always an abolitionist. Um, and we found a lot of uh, documentation of that. So one uh, church service, he, at the conclusion, after pronouncing that everyone should enlist, and, you know, one of the parishioners came up to him afterwards and said, well, you know, it's easy for you to say, go sign up and, and do all this, but what about you? And well, you know, he was 43 years old, and he had family, and he was a, he was a little overweight, uh, and he was a, he was a an ordained pastor, and but he thought about it afterwards, um, and the next day he told his wife, "I'm enlisting," <laughs> and and she laughed, and it's just was seemed kind of uh, just out of the realm for a pastor to do that, and he enlisted in the 86th of New York, 
uh, also known as the Steuben Rangers. In doing so, he did it as an infantryman. He enlisted not as a chaplain, but but in the infantry. And within three days, he was promoted to uh, a first lieutenant. That's how he he wound up, uh, you know, in in the Union uh, Army. And then his troops ultimately wound up in Washington D.C. And that's how he he first kind of got notice of Abraham Lincoln in terms of of uh, you know the the need for chaplains in the hospitals was becoming evident. I mean, Abe Lincoln was of the view that the, the injuries were so severe and so demoralizing that uh, they needed a spiritual component to their their healing. And uh, so he started putting chaplains into the hospitals, one of which was W.G. Now, prior to that, W.G., when they first arrived to Washington, was actually a war detective in the provost guard and, you know, packed a pistol and uh, <laughs> went after some some rebels and different things yeah and uh he had some real interesting adventures but then you know ultimately uh he wound up uh serving as a chaplain while still you know in the union uh service and uh and then he was honorably discharged in washington dc but he had risen to the attention of abraham lincoln at that point right at the moment that abraham lincoln was was wrestling with uh, african-american troops and and what to do about that I just watched the documentary Hex Hollow. It's about the murder of a man due to a belief in witchcraft in 1928. Are you intrigued? Documentaries like this and more are available on History Fix. Subscribe using the link in the show notes. Um, so before we dig into that, um, one question is, do we have any other maybe specific stories about him as a chaplain? Only because I feel that the stories of chaplains in the Civil War is not really told, I think. That's another thing. You're right, Paul. I mean, we we learned a lot more than we would have even imagined about chaplains in the Civil War. And I think what occurred, being Washington, D.C., where it was geographically, what it was in terms of the center of activity and government, the wounds that people were experiencing on the fields and the nature of the weaponry that had shifted was such that the hospitals, what were traditionally hospitals, were overrun. So they created these hospitals in churches and in schools. And so that is what W.G. was assigned to do. He was named chaplain of the hospitals. And then what occurred, like this is kind of what we gathered in getting to know him. He would come into a situation and see something. And in his case, as a chaplain, he did not like the way they were burying the dead. He found it inappropriate and offensive, really, because the coffins were not well maintained. They weren't well built. And so people were put into these caskets that weren't able to withstand water. They were piling up these caskets that were breaking apart. And so one of the very first things he did was to rectify that situation and improve the conditions and the ways in which the the people who had given their lives to the cause were buried. And then the the second thing, at one point, you know, this was a political environment. At one point, General Hammond wanted to close down one of the church hospitals and move the 30 or 40 people who were really in bad way to a to a so-called regular hospital. And WG was quite certain because he knew the people, he knew these these soldiers, that they wouldn't survive the move. 
And so he, and this is the strategic part of his lessons, I think. He, he had people he knew and he went right to work to countermand that, that order of General Hammond. And he had a couple of senators he knew well and he, he went to them. Of course, they couldn't pick up the phone necessarily or quick send an email. So he went over to these folks and one was a senator from Massachusetts. And he said, I, I want to have his order countermanded and you have sway. Will you do this? Will you take a message to Secretary of War Stanton to countermand this order? And so he got that person involved. He got a senator from New York um, to do the same thing. And then he knew a man whose last name was Roberts. We weren't able to determine fully who this individual was, but he got him to take the letters that these other gentlemen had prepared and go to see Secretary Stanton himself. And as a result of that, the very next day, the order was countermanded and WG was presented with this Bible that weighed 30 pounds. And in it was inscribed, it was from the patients, the attendants and the doctors of the hospital. It was inscribed to WG thanking him for his efforts in, in not having those poor uh, people moved. So that's, that's what we saw with his character and what we saw is his outcome of being a chaplain during Civil War times. Ever wonder what it would be like to talk to a Civil War veteran? The closest we can get is reading their letters, and the Excelsior Brigade has a great collection of original letters for sale, including a few written by Civil War Medal of Honor recipients. Afraid you can't read the Civil War script? They even transcribe the letters for you. Check out their wares at the link in the show notes. Gosh, I, I wonder where that Bible is now. <laughs> Funny you should ask. We do too. Yeah, we do too. <laughs> we wanna, that's going to be one of our missions in 2022 and 2023 is to find it. Because yeah. nobody would get rid of something like that, we hope. No, you can't picture that anyone disposing of that, no matter what their you know, thoughts are about it. It just, you know, 35 pound Bible, I just uh, inscribed. Yeah. I mean, they Civil would not, War. It has to be somewhere. So, yeah, that's a great question. That's our mission in life now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, you know, keep me posted. I think that's the next episode yeah. when we find this. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, here we have a, a fighting preacher, if you will. I mean, here's yes. a guy who's not afraid to get his hands dirty, but Absolutely. he's got compassion. But he's also a very aren't abolitionist. He seems like the man for that time when it comes to recruiting African-Americans, colored troops into the army. Can you talk exactly. a little bit about that period of time, what was going on politically, and how did uh, Raymond work his way into that? Absolutely. And, and that's, that's just such an interesting piece of the story. And, and as we mentioned, the Emancipation Proclamation uh, in January of 1863, uh, it, it almost became inevitable. I mean, there was always the debate. Frederick Douglass was always in Lincoln's ear about we need African-American troops from the District of Columbia to send this message and, and to build this groundswell of motivation to push this over the top. And, uh, and, and Lincoln had many concerns uh, about that, but mostly they were from more of a humanitarian angle. He, he was gravely concerned about African-American prisoners of war. You know, he envisioned Union uh, black troops being captured and they're and worried, of course, about their treatment and and so on. 
and there were political considerations as well, of course, at the time. So he was he was kind of struggling. And then the with the Emancipation Proclamation and Frederick Douglass again, you know, imploring uh, Lincoln to make a decision on this. The decision, in effect, was made for him. It, it there were in Washington D.C. at that time there were you know, hundreds of African-Americans that, that had convened and, and that wanted to fight. They wanted to enlist and uh, they wanted to fight for their freedom, essentially. And uh, and so the decision was kind of made for Lincoln. And then then he went all in once once he, you know, he got comfortable. Yes, this, you know, he, he even he convinced himself that it was the right thing to do. And he also sensed that it was necessary, you know, the uh, to to win the war and and it turned out to be true you know he and and he famously said you know years later or not years later but he famously said that uh you know the war would not have been won and there wouldn't have been a union uh, without the african-american effort so once that hurdle was passed and that he was all in and i mentioned that that uh, wg raymond and jd turner associate of his were suddenly found themselves with some time in their hands in washington dc they both were abolitionists. They both had served in the union effort, and they both were looking for challenge, and they were looking for a way to contribute. And so they began writing persuasive letters to Lincoln saying, let us recruit and drill and train a regiment of African-American soldiers from the District of Columbia. Lincoln pondered the, the, the letters. Uh, we found these letters in the Library of Congress. We found them in the Lincoln Library. Uh, eventually, a commissioner, Dole, who was the commissioner of Native American Affairs at the time championed WG and championed what J.D. Uh, Turner were doing. And he arranged a meeting with Lincoln and uh, W.G. Raymond and, and Turner and uh, Commissioner Dole met with Lincoln and they laid out their plans and Lincoln signed on. He, he was all in and uh, he wrote a letter. We The copy of the letter is in, in you know, the Lincoln's library and it, and it, 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 it it really co commanded W. Or Edwin Stanton to do all he can do to help these these guys uh, get this going, and uh, J.D. Turner was appointed colonel, and W.G. Raymond was appointed uh, lieutenant colonel. Away they went, and they went to Edwin Stanton, who uh, famously threw the letter down and said, "He's you know he doesn't know anything. Else he doesn't know anything. He said this is highly irregular, is what he was quoted as saying, and and." And then he, he finally realized, you know, this was a, an order from Lincoln and commander in chief and also, but he imposed these requirements uh, on the African-American troops from DC that were not required of, to that point had not been required of any recruiting activities of, of white soldiers or other. And uh, in those words that 640 men had to be recruited and pass inspection and before he would muster them in, and he also withheld appropriations for these troops. And as a result, W.G. Raymond paid for the tents, the provisions, uh, uniforms. the uniforms as they were. Uh, what you know, he it came out of his own pocket during the period of time that Stanton fumed really over this imposition he felt from Lincoln. You know, sort of imposing these officers on him and. And he was just playing, kind of playing hardball. And W.G. Raymond went broke doing this. I mean, he, he literally went broke. And had a bullet zing past his head. It, um, exactly. Uh, Union exactly. Soldiers. And so the streets of D.C. at that time were 
a very uh, interesting mix of people. I mean, there were there were a lot of Confederates. There were a lot of sympathizers from the North for, for the Confederate cause. There were a lot of, obviously, hardcore Union supporters. But it was a real mix. And, and so it was a dangerous undertaking to recruit and drill. And they would literally march these troops down the streets of Washington in early May of 1863. And they, re they recruited hundreds. And, well, it, it, got, it was clearly taking on a life of its own, and Edwin Stanton felt he had to get ahead of it somehow. As I mentioned earlier, states' regiments of African Americans were already fighting. They were already being raised, and they were in battle. And again, those were authorized by governors as opposed to uh, from Washington. So, you know, there they were, and, and he had to get ahead of it, Edwin Stanton. So he uh, hastily, we you know pulled together the Bureau of Colored Troops on May 22nd of 1863, and that was to become the sort of overseer of all African American uh, activities fighting for the Union Army, state level. You know, of course, from District of Columbia, it was all to be roped in together, and essentially, the May 22nd became, for many historians, the the beginning, the genesis of of the or the USCT or United States Colored Troops. But prior to that, and this is what fell through the cracks, and it's because during that period of time, there were no appropriations, there were no pension records accruing. The first yeah. district of Columbia or district of Columbia Colored Volunteers were all sort of out there in the wind. I mean, and WG was, of course, you know, training them and so forth out of his own pocket. And and Lincoln was very supportive of what they were doing. And Lincoln set out one day to go observe them, and he discovered they were gone and they in here uh, edwin stanton after may 22nd and the establishment of bureau of colored troops moved all of the troops that wg raymond had raised and recruited and trained out to anastolan island uh, and didn't tell the commander-in-chief <laughs> and, and the commander-in-chief didn't even know so you know lincoln this was done without even lincoln's knowledge and it was to get get them out of lincoln's daily line of sight because Edwin Stanton was was still feeling that Lincoln was meddling. And so he moved the troops to the island, Mason's Island, it was also called, and uh, began training them out there. But at that time, he that is when he changed command to, to Colonel William Burney uh, from W.G. Raymond and summarily uh, transitioned to new leadership and renamed essentially the first district of Columbia Colored Volunteers. That's when the United States Colored Troops uh, really uh, formally were launched and, and they be became part of the first United States Colored Troops or USCT. And that's kind of the story. You know, the first USCT uh, uh, was largely recruited and trained uh, by W.G. Raymond and J.D. Turner and, and uh, Henry McNeil yes. Turner, uh, and, you know, an amazing African-American minister there, pastor there in Washington, uh, was a strong advocate along with, with Frederick Douglass of what was going on. And uh, that was essentially, that slate was wiped clean and they started fresh on May 22nd. And that, that's why so many historians miss this. No pension records, no War Department records. That's why they miss this. And that's how he fell through the cracks. And essentially it boils down to Lincoln trying to force the issue, you know, and get get African Americans, you know, integrated into the Union Army and, and which was critically necessary as it turns out. And Edwin Stanton feeling imposed upon, essentially, and feeling that his turf was was being sort of, you know, Lincoln was meddling. And 
that's how this incredible story of these courageous yeah. uh, recruits, you know, and, this, and they were called horrible names, as you can imagine. And, you know, this incredible story. And, you know, our whole point is, you know, it really matters. You know, this story matters because these recruits were signing up before there was even the support of the War Department, essentially. It took, you know, just a tremendous amount of courage to do that. And then the frustration of the of Lincoln appointed officers, you know, having to pay for supplies out of their own pocket. And while the War Department fumed, you know, and it was just, it's just a fascinating story. And it just, it, but it, to your point, Paul, you are not the first to tell us, boy, who was this guy? You know, why have I not heard of this guy? And, and that, that's really why it was a, it was kind of a standoff there in the early part of May of that year. And then after May 22nd, Stanton kind of folded it all under his arm and, and ran with it and kicked WG out <laughs> Mm-hmm. And away it went, and history was was made. But and what's remarkable is that the first USCT arguably fought the the biggest victory for African American troops in the Civil War. Well, that's Wilson's. what I was uh, going to bring yeah. up here is that uh, so Raymond sort of gets the rug pulled out from under him, even after basically this is his child, right? He's he's paid, he's paid for their uniforms, he's trained them, um, and then he gets ripped out of the line. And replaced, right? But the USCT, first USCT, they do go on, and I'm sure with the training that he gave them, he does. They do win laurels. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, he maintained a strong interest in the first USCT. Uh, he felt a sense of pride there, you know, and and participation with them for having gone through a lot there on the streets of DC. So he always maintained. Uh, an understanding of what they were doing and where they were going. Now, I mentioned uh, Henry McNeil Turner. Now, uh, he went on to become the first African-American uh, officer chaplain of the first USCT. And, and he and, and Raymond were well acquainted and, and they, they kept touch. But um, the first USCT, when, after uh, Colonel Bernie came along and, and you know, was tra- took over training out on Mason's Island, they wound up in a, you know, in a battle in 1864 at Wilson's Wharf, and this is not Wilson's Bridge, which is another famous battle, but uh, at Wilson's Wharf, uh, Fitzhugh Lee, who was the nephew of Robert E. Lee, um, mounted an assault on this installation uh, that was being protected by the first USCT, uh, another African-American regiment, uh, General Wild, um, and they were assaulted uh, attacked by the Confederates led by Fitzhugh Lee, and they fought them off. And uh, Fitzhugh Lee wound up uh, retreating and heading towards Richmond. And it was a significant victory, and it for a variety of reasons, strategically, but also symbolically. There was, you know, there were a lot of questions about how how will African Americans assimilate? How will they fight? How will they? And so many of the the commanding officers came back and said lay that to rest <laughs> they've proven themselves for history and this was a significant victory you know just a, just a side note here there was a lot of push back and forth around uh, african americans fighting for the union of course and at one point once this decision was made to move forward it was proposed <laughs> it's just it's hard to imagine but it was proposed that uh, african americans first 
demonstrate their battle readiness by fighting uh, what were per the perception or perceived uh, hostile Native Americans uh, in the country. And this is one of, to us, one of the most powerful moments in the book is Henry McNeil Turner, as we just talked about, and the chaplain of the first USCT, made one of the most eloquent proclamations uh, against doing that. And you know, he, he resisted it in, in all terms. And so the Wilson's Wharf victory and plus what had gone on, of course, prior to that with the 54th and, and some units elsewhere, they needed to prove no longer, you know, that, that they, they they were willing to fight and uh, and well. And uh, one of the most rewarding things of this is we first read all this as we started off with this discussion in the memoirs of W.G. Raymond. And it, and it seemed quite remarkable to us, a lot of these representations she was making, given that everyone, including us, had never really heard of the guy. And we were wondering, wow, we need to cooperate this, hopefully. And the most gratifying thing about this, working on this book, was that with research of the availability as it is today, we were able to cooperate virtually every representation that he made with respect to his service in the Union Army and his interactions with W.G. Raymond, a variety of senators, Henry McNeil Turner, Frederick Douglass, all, and they were all cooperated through bits and pieces that we pieced together through these various archives. It's just a, a missing piece of history, and it is, you know, very appropriately untold Civil War history. It, it's, and it's for what we just discussed. It, it, it was a, you know, they were their activities were not endorsed or recorded uh, until after May 22nd, and all of the work and risk and a bullet nearly going to his head uh, was never recorded, other than the incredibly diligent work that we encountered. I, we mentioned a couple of books earlier. There are a few that, that pieced it together, but the, the, in the main, history omits the that's story. Mystic. And that's our primary motivation is to get the story told. Marching in the Remembrance Day Parade? I know you've got your sack coat, your forage cap, and your brogans already. But do you have a Corps badge? Don't be caught dead without it. The 11th, 1st, and 5th Corps were at Gettysburg, just to name a few. You may want to pay tribute to them by sporting their Corps badges. All available from the badge maker. Link in the show notes. And this bullet that's also very interesting, you mentioned the bullet that goes by. Now, this happens in Washington, right? This is not on the battlefield. This is in Washington, the capital. And it's just because it's such a a mixed hot pot of secessionists and, you know, people not, maybe they support uh, the union, but not necessarily freeing the slaves. It's, it's all a mix and hot tempers flare. And this guy is really, it's, it's deadly on those streets. You know, it actually went through a church. It was shot through a window and the bullet fortunately was deflected by a, a sash on the, the window. But uh, that's precisely the streets were wild in Washington, DC. And they were, you know, it was a, uh, hot, it was an emotional powder keg, uh, and all of this was going on uh, as W.G. and J.D. Turner and, and these brave and these, uh, recruits and these incredible forward. recruits that stepped forward. There's there's several powerful moments we feel in the book, uh, you know, encounters that some of the recruits uh, had to endure, uh, taunts, and uh, how proudly they. It was just remarkable to read how they were able to say, hey, I am a soldier. 
you know, of the Union Army. And, you know, basically you will respect that. And it's just, it's, it's a remarkable story and it's, an, it's, it's very uh, disconcerting that it, that it isn't, you know, our, our mission is to get it told and do, it's documented and annotated and, you know, we're, we really feel that we've done a, a diligent Oh, work on it. Oh, um, absolutely. I would yeah. say, you know, you guys are doing a great job. And, uh, you know, I'm so pleased to try to help you guys out by bringing you on the show. Um, but the book is a, a testament in and of itself. But what I would like to get into is we talked a little bit about Raymond's exploits and his achievements. But I, I would like to get into his, a little bit his personal side. You know, it's it's interesting that when you have these strong characters, you know, strong men, even you think of Ulysses S. Grant, Grant struggled a little bit with alcohol. Heck, even Sherlock Holmes in fiction has his own <laughs> struggles with uh, sort of vices. Can you talk a little bit about Raymond's experience with opium? Because I think that's something that sort of follows him. So many of the elements of this story are still with us today, including the uh, opium, addiction, um, divided country, racial issues. Um, but but with what had, had occurred, two things had majorly occurred. Um, we talked a bit of, uh, at the beginning about the, the kinds of wounds that the soldiers were getting on the battlefield. And one of the, the uh, elements that was employed to try and help also with things like diarrhea, which was a common problem as well, was opium. Uh, and they had it in the form of, some of it was mixed with alcohol, sometimes at the same very time, uh, a, a Scottish physician had developed the hypodermic needle. So they were able to inject opium as well. And what happened with WG, his entire life, he fought issues related to his stomach. They called it colic, but he also had abscesses on his liver and kidneys. And he would have these periods of time where he was in so much pain. And, and his goal was always not only just, not only to live, but to be active. And so he had a very good friend who was a physician himself, uh, Dr. James Kent. And he prescribed for WG when WG was in a really bad place, what was called Bigelow's purified opium. Now, the way that it was supposed to have worked was to kind of tide him over until he was able to, you know, essentially recuperate. But what happens, as we know from today, is it didn't take long at all for that habit to become fixed. And he wrote of that. He he wrote in his own memoir that it didn't take long until he felt like he needed to have opium with him, sometimes an extra dose to face things. And he spent 10 years in what he called himself a, a helpless invalid, uh, trying to live a productive life, but being reliant upon, upon opium. And he wasn't alone in that. So many of the soldiers came back and just like today, there are people who view it as a moral weakness. There are people who view it as, yeah, more or less a moral weakness. Like, oh, yeah, you, you, you want to be on opium. And it's not like that. Those, those receptors get formed and you're in for a ride. And if you can't get the correct treatment, and I don't even know if it exists really even today, but in any case, he struggled long and hard with that, as did so many others. Uh, who for, who found relief in the very beginning 
but their issues didn't resolve and their addiction or their habit, as they would call it then, was fixed. Have you got a Civil War business, a podcast, relic store, tour bus, or a battlefield bed and breakfast? Get your logo designed by the experts over at 1863 Designs. They are the best in regards to Civil War graphic design. Their link will be in the show notes. How did these experiences, the war, working in these hospitals, you know, even as a soldier, and then, of course, the struggle with opium, how does that affect him going into the realm of being a healer? Oh, that's such a, that's a, that's a wonderful question because that's exactly it. The, all of those elements came together. And what happened is he, he was almost trying to run ahead of, of his addiction. He was trying to run ahead of these these losses he had he had lost two wives um he had lost two sons had died and he he found himself wanting to return to washington dc where he had been at kind of a pinnacle at the time i mean he was productive he was younger he was you know new people he wasn't in any great difficulty he didn't have his opium addiction then and he he basically found himself holed up in a room with a Bible and a hymnal, milk and bread. And he spent months, it's, it's, it's almost makes me cry, spent months in that, that kind of hermit-like existence, trying to understand his life, still wanting to be productive, still wanting to give. I, it was a it was a, a real experience. He was preparing, I think, Bill, Bill agrees too, that he was considering ending his life. He he took a gun, it was loaded. He went out to an area of Rock Creek Park that he had used as kind of a reflective place for him. And he left the key in his room on 14th Street so that if he didn't come back, someone could get into that room. He basically put himself down on the earth, you know, was feeling the warmth of the earth and the sun on him and basically pleading with God to help him. And he had, you know, what maybe Paul, Saul, Saul, who became Paul in the Bible, uh, viewed as a conversion experience. And after that day, he never used opium again. And his illnesses receded. And it was such a powerful experience for him that he he said, he, he finally understood. He'd also seen a physician put prayer at the same place as medical treatment, and it had left a lasting impression on him. So that's kind of where he found himself thinking that there is a way out. I know it because I've, in his case, he lived it. He was he was healed, and he he wanted to take that to others. And at the same time, there were that became kind of a movement. Um, you know, faith healing. I mean, he wasn't one of those that would have used uh, snakes or snake oil, or it was a, it was a, perhaps, a, uh, I mean, not to say that that isn't, couldn't work or isn't profound, but it, it, his was more of a, a divine intervention almost. So that's, that's how he spent the rest of his life was he didn't take money for it. He, he went all over the place. That's the other thing Bill and I always marvel at. WG, I mean, this was in the 1800s. He was all over the place. And, you know, how he did all that is pretty impressive. Horses, walking. walking. Yeah, he walked long distances. So that's how faith healing and and um, affected him personally and then how he took it to others at the toward the end of his life. 
I just got in the mail the 2022 autumn issue of Military Images magazine. In its pages are articles which talk about the must-have device to detect fake Civil War images, antebellum army sappers, how the Zouave craze came to America, and so much more. Subscribe using the link in the show notes. So on that note, one of the last questions I wanted to ask is I know when people tend to write biographies, they really get to know the person they're writing about, really kind of almost on an intimate level. What did you guys learn from WG and his story and, and overall his life? I mean, is this a guy you'd want to sit down and have a beer with, so to speak? You know, is this the guy yes. you'd like to talk to, you know? Yes. I mean, you know, Paul, uh, that's exactly right. After we completed all of the, the research and, and sort of assembled the, the outline, it was like, I really wished that we could have known this person because the impression he made on me was one of you know, that we mentioned Margaret Leach in her book, Calling Him Zealous, but he had such an energy. He had such a uh, commitment to making a difference somehow. And interestingly, he also knew his limitations. He, he knew uh, his weaknesses and his faults, and, and he owned them. That was what was so interesting about the, the man. And, you know, you mentioned at the top of the show, or maybe as we were talking just prior, about the, the lessons of the Civil War. Uh, and that's what we talked about, uh, just not only with WG, but all of the other remarkable uh, people that we encountered in our research. But the lessons in leadership, the lessons in negotiation, the, the lessons in compromise were abundant. And WG had so many virtues that were so enviable and such a difficult time to hang on to your virtues. You know, it was such a challenging time. Um, so, yes, I would absolutely love to sit down and have a beer with him. <laughs> uh, he he has such an interesting story. And I mentioned how gratifying it was, you know, to read his memoir, which was so fascinating and it was meticulous. You know, he was very thoughtful in how he assembled it and what what he wanted to say. But then to find out, you know, the man was telling the truth, he, his story checks out, uh, was just so gratifying that I, I'd really like to basically shake his hand and give him a hug. <laughs> well, I know once people hear this, they're going to want to buy the book because we're only scratching the surface. There's so much more to Raymond to learn about. So how can people get a copy of your book? Where can they learn more about you? Uh, go ahead and plug yourselves all of the information about the book, about us, where you can buy it. Uh, and that's wgthebook.com. Uh, that's a good landing spot. Uh, there's a lot of good information. There's some some videos and there's some other conversations that we've had with people on there. Uh, a lot of background on the book. Um, we, you know, would point people to that, but it is available in, you know, the usual places, you know, Amazon, of course, Barnes & Noble and elsewhere, book, uh, bookshop.org as well. Um, and Sunbury Press, uh, to mention. But um, yeah, we, we would love to have people, you know, read the story and share it. Uh, it it's, it's been a wonderful experience for us. Oh, wonderful. I'm going to definitely put links in the show notes so people can click and go directly to your website and then purchase the book. And so thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And right. we appreciate it. And you're doing very, you. very important work at, at Untold Civil War. You really are. And, and we're so happy that we uh, connected. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you. And we'll definitely have to do this again. I hope you enjoyed that episode while you drove home from work, working out, carrying a dispatch for General George Pickett, sending a message with signal flags to General Daniel Butterfield, or whenever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to check out the YouTube channel. And if you enjoy my content here, but wish I covered other topics such as World War II, the Vietnam conflict, or even pirates, then check out the Tactical Historian, which as of right now is exclusive on YouTube. Well, bye for now, and I hope you tune in next time for our next episode.